Hello, it's Thursday the 1st of September. I'm Hannah Pearson. On today's show, Gary Bowman and I will once again sift through the top 10 travel talking points from August. So let's get started. This is the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Hello, wherever you are in the world, and thanks for listening in. So today, Hannah and I are going to take stock of an important month for travel and tourism in Southeast Asia and the wider Asia-Pacific region. Quite a lot happened over the last month. We've selected 10 discussion points from August that we think reflect the current direction of travel as, as we look towards the last quarter of the year. Which brings me to this point, Hannah. Let's take a pause and rewind. We're now two-thirds of the way through 2022. What are your reflections on the travel year so far? Hmm, good question. I mean, you know, I, I still feel actually quite positive. I mean, I think recovery is not where everybody wants it to be still, and that's inevitable. I think there's always that desire for things to recover faster, um, and, you know, it's never fast enough. But overall... And I keep saying this, and you look back at last year and where we were last year and just the, it was gloomy, right? It was quite bleak. This time last year, I was thinking, you know, 1st of September, 2021, Malaysia was just about starting to think about opening their Langkawi travel bubble. And I think interstate domestic travel had not even restarted. So, you know, I think it's always good to take that step back and look at last year and see that things are progressing, you know, both for domestic and, and international is starting to pick up. Of course, there are challenges. Um, but yeah, kind of cautiously optimistic, I think. How about you? Yeah, I, w- I would agree with that. I think I, I get interviewed quite a lot. And one of the things you have to reiterate is the fact that although we're two thirds of the year through 2022, you know, travel didn't really kick off until April and most restrictions weren't lifted until May. So it's still very early stages. We're still trying to learn a lot about how this recovery, uh, what the projections will be. Um, the airlines are still rebuilding capacity, the hotels likewise. So that, you know, you're absolutely right. Cautiously optimistic is probably the best we can be right now. There are encouraging signs, I think, for sure. And I think one of the most encouraging signs, which we will talk about later today, is these stirrings of travel activity in Northeast Asian markets, because you know, we have seen over the past two years that particularly in terms of aviation, Southeast Asia and Northeast Asia have become largely decoupled, which you know, was, certainly wasn't the case before the pandemic. They were so vital to each other. Uh, and hopefully, you know, leading into the rest of this year and into 2023, you know, we will start to see a stronger Asia-Pacific driven recovery. And then talk about what's happening in Europe or, or North America becomes less important because the drivers will actually be in our region. Yeah, absolutely. So should we have a look then at the top 10 talking points and we've kind of we've kind of cheated haven't we Gary because it's not necessarily one point per country but we've kind of looked at general themes I think that have emerged in August haven't we yeah we have and I think one of those is inevitably we talk about this all the time Hannah but that's the the visitor forecasting and the spend and the spending forecast which keep going up don't they? I think this is the interesting thing that we've learned uh, as this sort of incremental recovery begins is that as more volumes of tourists or you know moderated volumes of tourists come into each country you know inevitably the forward forecasting changes yeah exactly and and people are getting more excited i mean what's probably interesting is although some of them have been increasing thailand and of course we have to talk about thailand um has actually kind of remained at its 10 million 
Um, so if you think other countries like Malaysia this week have upped its forecast, previously it was forecasting 4.5 million. They've now jumped that um, and the tourism minister is aiming for 9.2 million. Um, so, you know, they've doubled their, their expectations. Um, Thailand is keeping to that kind of steady 10 million right now. Um, I think they were estimating that they would hit about 4.5 million by the end of August. And of course, the year end is a really peak travel time for them, uh, particularly from long haul markets like Europe. Um, so they're really relying on that. But it's, it's interesting, I always mean, say that the different approaches that countries are taking to this forecasting. Yeah, absolutely. You're right with Thailand. It is a strange one. I think, you know, that full year forecast is definitely constrained by the fact that in the first half of the year, it just didn't really get to probably where it wanted to be. Uh, and, and forward forecasting, given the um, the airline capacity that it has at the moment, you know, it's, it's going to be hard for it to go much, much higher than 10 or 11, I think, at the outset. But as you said, you know, we'll be quite reliant on the end of year uh, international tourism season. We would imagine there'll be quite a strong uh, return from Russian travelers, from European travelers. Ooh, it's difficult to say, isn't it, with the, with the, the gas price rises and the, the cost of living crunch that most of Europe is going to be experiencing. Indian travelers could be coming back, you guess, and maybe Chinese too. So yeah, there's a whole mix. It's interesting to be actually talking about things that are more about possibilities rather than, than where we were a year ago, as you said, Hannah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and there have been some other crazy forecasts being thrown around recently. So one was uh, a forecast that Vietnam would get 22 million visitors um, by uh, 2026. What do you make of that, Gary? Yeah, that's, that's quite expansive, isn't it? Given, you know, it's had quite a slow recovery this year. Um, but forward forecasting five years down the road, I mean, anything could happen at that point. I mean, you would expect there will be expansive growth. Vietnam is going to be a popular destination. You know, numbers will increase for sure. Whether they'll quite hit those heights right now, I think it's very, very difficult to tell. Yeah, exactly. So shall we move on then to uh, our next story? And this is a specific country one, actually. So this is Singapore. This is one of your picks, wasn't it, Gary? Yeah, I, th I think it's, Singapore is kind of the benchmark for, for everybody at the moment. In Asia Pacific, I think, and, and for many reasons, I think just because of the diversity of its, of its travel economy, it's very, very different, operates very, very different to other countries in our region. You know, it isn't just really relying on, on its beaches and its islands like, like Thailand is. You know, it's really about inbound, outbound and connective travel. Um, and so you're starting to see some pretty impressive numbers in Singapore. Arrivals have increased for six straight months there. Singapore Airlines exceeded 2 million passengers for capacity in July for the first time since the pandemic. Chang Changi Airport had 13.2 million passengers from January through July. Now, that's quite a good number. That surpassed 11.8 million in 2020. So you can see that there is definite upward curves here. Changi is looking by the end of August to be at 58% of its pre-COVID capacity. Now, I think the interesting point with this, and I was talking to Maya Patel from OAG the other day, is he said that actually this is an interesting period now going into the second half of the year because actually recovering that first 50% of, of capacity is fairly easy. It gets a little bit difficult from here on going forward of actually accelerating at the speed that you want it to do. Um, but looking forward, you know, Singapore does seem very, very buoyant about the future, the longer term forecasts it announced this month that it will go ahead. Uh, it's planning to go ahead with, with its Terminal 5, which was delayed for two years during the pandemic. And when that's actually completed in the mid-2030s, 
this T5, which is, which is huge, it's a massive area of land, should be able to handle up to 50 million passengers itself. Um, and the four terminals at Changi right now have a combined capacity of around about 70 million. So by the mid-2030s, mid Singapore could have a capacity of 120 million uh, and, and rising, which is phenomenal, really. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and, you know, and I think that that underlines the importance that the government has always placed on positioning um, Changi Airport as that premium hub. You know, even throughout the pandemic, there is always so much rhetoric from the government around the importance of keeping Changi Airport alive, keeping Singapore Airlines alive, because they're going to be the, the economic drivers um, for the country. And you can see that. And I, th I think what else was interesting when they announced this new T5 was that they were calling it uh, pandemic proof, right? They've, they've actually planned in already the fact that there could be another pandemic and you can split this massive terminal up into sub-terminals. You can increase the ventilation, for example. They will have areas where you can have isolation. So they, they are really taking, you know, the, the, the threat of another pandemic very seriously. And if that does arise, this terminal is really going to stand them in good stead. Yeah, absolutely agree. Fascinating, fascinating project to watch. And uh, we'll, we'll keep tabs on that because it's, it's still at the very early stage. It's still at the planning stage. But once it gets moving, it, it is probably the region's uh, most innovative and, as you said, uh, most flexible uh, airport uh, development that, that's been planned for the next few years. So next up has to be China, doesn't it? I mean, as, as you were saying, Gary, there's so much rides between East Asia and Southeast Asia and driving a Southeast Asian recovery. But there's been a little bit more good news out of China, hasn't there? Yeah, it's, it's the talk of the travel industry at the moment, definitely, is the fact that China does seem to be moving um, quite quickly now towards uh, restoring levels of uh, air transport uh, in and out of the country from the 31st of August. It scrapped the requirement for outbound and inbound travelers to report a nucleic acid test result, their infection history and their dates of vaccination. So those requirements have gone. Now, these initial steps in terms of the Chinese media are presenting this as uh, a real way to open up the doors to international foreign students to come back. It's very, very important for China. So many foreign students study uh, each year in China. And also for um, Chinese tourists, that are, uh, travelers that are going overseas, particularly to visit friends or family, for them to come back and make it much easier when they return. But of course, the, in, the, the talk in the industry now is that this will revive or start to revive outbound travel. We're starting to see more flights from China. I think there's ex expectations that over the, the final quarter of this year, you know, that will increase quite significantly. Um, and so everybody, you know, at the moment is talking about how and when Chinese travelers will come back. There are some caveats. I think, you know, the 20th Party Congress doesn't happen until the middle of October. That's when Xi Jinping is supposed to be granted his third term. And I think at that point, things will start to become clearer. But on the sort of run up to that over the next month and a half, I think we will start to see more announcements that the Chinese travel uh, is going to be made much easier. And obviously for our region, that's, uh, that's the good news that everybody wants to hear. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even in the Bangkok Post last week, it was reporting that the Civil Aviation Authority of Thailand had said that the Civil Aviation Ministry of China had you know, hinted at this possibility of opening up more passenger flights uh, between the two countries from the current three to 15 per week. So that's, that's a big jump. Um, and like you say, you know, everybody is quietly excited, I think, about this and just keeping an eye on it. And like you say, you know, we, we still are not going to know probably for some time, but definitely one to watch. 
Yeah, absolutely. Case of managing expectations in the short term, I think, but definitely uh, uh, stronger, stronger indications that things are going to get a little bit better. Yes. So our next story or stories from August is around fleet expansions. And, you know, this, this is interesting because just over the last um, couple of weeks, we've really seen this flurry of, of airlines, you know, either confirming that they are going to keep taking orders. So for Garuda uh, Indonesia Group, they announced last week that they're going to add 65 aircraft to their fleet. Um, by the year end. A lot of this is actually driven, it seems, by the um, government who, you know, own own a stake in the airline, um, who are very concerned about fares. Um, and they see, you know, get more planes operating and perhaps that the airfares can lower. Um, we've also seen Air Asia announce that it will start to take delivery of its 362 A321neos um, from 2024, Philippine Airlines has said that they are thinking about expanding their fleet. Um, you know, the airlines seem to, they're in a tricky place, aren't they, right now, Gary? Yeah, it's a difficult time. And it, it, it's very difficult to actually forward plan what, what, you know, what customer demand is going to be. Um, we are seeing some capacity building from, from airlines. You know, we are seeing new routes coming back, new frequencies coming back. Uh, some of those popular routes, particularly to sort of destinations like Australia, um, I, you know, we're waiting to see whether the routes will come back to to China and to Japan. Now, these things are very, very important. And, and until those things actually start to, to happen, I think it's, it's quite difficult for the airlines to plan. We've also got the issues we'll come to in, the, in a moment um, about the, the jet fuel price and the volatility that we're seeing there. So, yeah, I mean, the challenges are, are immense for the industry and they were, they were always going to be as we as we said at the, at the top of the show, Hannah, this is still the very early stages. And, you know, a lot of those dislocations from the COVID lockdowns and border closures are still working their way through the system. So these sort of fleet expansions are based on longer term expectations of growth, I would imagine. But yeah, it's interesting to see. I mean, it, it does show that there is optimism for getting through 2022 and then from 2023 and perhaps especially from 2024, a real uh, takeoff in terms of uh, travel activity i like that takeoff talking about airlines nice <laughs> um next story um again related to uh, airlines is domestic air passengers and if you're looking at vietnam now the civil aviation authority of vietnam announced that its total passenger domestic numbers in the first half of the year have now exceeded those um, for 2019. So that again is is impressive. And it's no wonder that especially Vietnam Airlines are being pretty aggressive in expanding new routes, because there is that demand there, people are traveling there. Um, And you know, Gary, as you pointed out before, Vietnam is a country where you know, it's long and thin, you kind of need to fly around to, to be efficient, the trains are very slow to get from one place to the other. So the only way is flying. So this is definitely good news. Um, same out of the Philippines. I mean, the Philippines is not quite there. I, you know, it has not reached those 2019 levels. But the Civil, Aer- Civil Aeronautics Bureau announced that domestic flights of about 90% of them have now resumed. Uh, the first half of the year, they saw about 9.7 million and domestic passengers too. There's a, a strong recovery in the Philippines. And again, it's got that characteristic where people have to fly, you know, going from island to island that really needs to happen. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think the overlay, I mean, one of the, thing, the interesting things I think here in Malaysia is we are seeing um, domestic travel, which is always quite robust anyway. We are seeing domestic uh, leisure travel, particularly on weekends and public holidays, as you would expect. But I think there's a bit of an upturn as well in, in domestic business and mice travel as well, um, which is helping to, to keep the, the numbers of domestic passengers higher than they normally would be. The flight prices aren't too high compared to international flights. Um, but yeah, there does seem to be strong demand. And I mean, I think we thought this was going to happen through this year. It's inevitable, I think, that people are still traveling domestically. Perhaps discretionary spend is not as high as it was before the, the pandemic. Uncertainty and, and, and getting the right flight times that you want to travel internationally at the moment. Um, but it's great to see that domestic travel activity is strong. Um, and I, I don't really see that decreasing, do you? I think that's going to be strong through next year. Yep, yep, I, I would agree with that. Yeah, I, I can't see it dropping off anytime soon. Moving on to our next story, and, and this is it's kind of a slow burner, this, and I think this is going to come and have more relevance later on. But I think we're starting to see a redefinition of what fully vaccinated means or how we should define it. So, I mean, I say that because in Indonesia, they have certainly tightened the rules. And nowadays, you have to have a booster shot to be able to enter a shopping mall, for example, to be able to travel even domestically. And that includes by train, that's by plane as well, or, or even in your in your private car, though, how they monitor that <laughs> is anybody's guess. Um, but, you know, there's there's that move. And of course, Indonesia is partially driven by the fact that they do have quite a low take up of the booster rates. So they, they're using that kind of carrot stick approach to incentivize people to get their booster shot. But even Singapore, um, last week is talking about redefining this. I mean, the deputy prime minister had said there, he said there may well be future boosters. So we need a more enduring system to define and to talk about vaccinations that are up to date on an ongoing basis. So perhaps we are going to see this move away from, you know, fully vaccinated or even boosted to just up to date vaccinations. And you know, each country is going to have its own definition of what up to date means. Yeah, it is fascinating. I, I think we discussed this on the podcast uh, two or three months ago, Hannah. It's, it's going to be difficult for countries to go through these mass vaccination programs again, as we saw over the last two years, or the last year and a half, I guess, simply because it, logistics, cost and all those things. And, and I think definitely a declining um, take up for third or fourth boosters in future. But as you say, if they do redefine what that actually means in terms of travel, you will see people actually taking their boosters when they need them, when they need to travel more likely. But yeah, it's a fascinating thing. And this is an, an emerging uh, development, I guess, one, one that we'll have to watch. There are different, aren't there, different demographics and different problems. In most countries in the region, you look at Hong Kong, you look at China, Indonesia is one of those cases as well, where the older demographics haven't had uh, as much vaccination as, as younger people and makes them more vulnerable. And certainly in Hong Kong, the impacts of that have definitely been shown over recent months, and it's where the concerns are right now that a lot of the people in hospital are, are older generations. It's an enduring problem, and how that actually gets solved is, is probably going to define not just travel and tourism, it's going to define many, many things over the coming years. Absolutely. So let's go back to aviation. And, and Gary, you, you just kind of hinted about this, but of course, you know, we, we're seeing fuel prices and they are still high, uh, you know, particularly for jet fuel. They have decreased a little bit, and then, you know, they're, they're still up there. And high these high airfares are really top of government's minds, at least in certain countries, as something that is preventing um, domestic travel from really reaching its full potential. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if we if we track and IATA produces a jet fuel index, and the way that it tracks uh, that against the, the the crude oil price, jet fuel is it, it's very very dynamic, very fickle, and and very hard to trend. And at the moment, the the trend went down. Sort of from most of July, the price of jet fuel started to go down. It started to go back up again um, in August. So again, you know, that's very very difficult to to plan. If you look at where it is now compared to where it was, say, a year ago, in jet fuel in Asia Pacific, is around about 96% up where it was a year ago. So yeah, almost 100%. But actually, if you go back a couple of months ago, it was well over 100%. So there has been a slight drop. I was listening to a, a, a webinar just before we came on air, Hannah, by Oxford Economics, and they were looking at the, the future oil pre- price trend, jet fuel price trends, and they do forecast that from probably next year, they will start to, to, to level off and will actually will start to decline quite, quite significantly. But they will still stay high. But what, they did, what uh, Oxford Economics did add into the, the mix is that, you know, jet fuel is only one of the costs for airlines. It's a significant one, but it's only one of them. And it, it did add that one of the big costs for most airlines right now is servicing the debt that they took on during the pandemic. You know, that is actually fueling some of these higher flight price tickets that we're seeing. Inflation around the world is going to cause economic scarring as well. So although jet fuel price itself may come down, and that is also projected on the fact we don't quite know what's going to happen from China, you know, there could be a massive surge in demand for jet fuel from the Chinese airlines, and that would you know, increase the pressure on, on the supply of, of jet fuel. There are so many variables at the moment, and I think it's really difficult to say. I mean, I was looking at flight prices going back to Europe over Christmas. Uh, prices are extremely high. They're at least 60%, probably more than they were two years ago. So, um, you know, at the moment, looking towards the end of this year, transcontinental flying is, is going to be expensive. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's interesting, you know, yesterday in Indonesia, the tourism minister there, Sindiago Uno, actually ordered airlines to reduce their domestic fares by 15%, 15%. You know, some some governments are kind of taking matters into their own hands. You know, Philippines sets its fuel surcharge levels, which did drop. They they were all the way at level twelve, and then they dropped that down to level nine from September. With this increase again, you know, perhaps they're going to have to to, to rethink that move. But like you say, you know, costs are going to impact the number of tourists who come in or who travel domestically. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, you'd have to say it's a smart move to try and drive down domestic flight prices. But at some point, there's going to have to be subsidy involved in doing that, as, as we see in a lot of the countries. Malaysia is a good example. Indonesia is that governments spend a lot of money subsidizing petrol so that, you know, the, the price at the, at the pump hasn't accelerated as it has for ha- perhaps in Europe or North America. But that costs the government a lot of money to do that. You know, they have to pay a lot in subsidies to do that. And, you know, where does that money come that that impacts other parts of the economy. So it's it's a big juggling act right now. There are, there are a lot of uh, variables around energy and, and fuel prices. Definitely. So let's move on to visa periods. Um, and this has been, a, a, again, something that's come up in August is both Thailand and Vietnam have started to reassess the length of their visas. So Thailand has approved the extension of their visa exemption period from 30 days to 45 days. Um, and, you know, their argument, of course, they want longer stay tourists, the longer tourists stay in the country, the more money they're going to spend. So that makes sense. And in theory, that should go into action very soon. 
And the Vietnamese tourism ministry also came out and criticized the current um, 15 day visa exemption policy. And, you know, they're clearly keeping an eye on what their neighbors are doing, because he said that this visa exemption, just 40, just 15 days, was not competitive enough, he said, to attract long haul markets. Um, So, you know, governments are really kind of calibrating their visa policies and looking at that and thinking, okay, how can we how can we not, you know, not entirely change things, not entirely scrap things, but just just tweak it a little bit. So, you know, those people who do want to stay in the country a little bit longer can do and we can generate incrementally that that little bit of revenue that, that adds up. It's a fascinating debate, and it's one that's definitely a hot topic right now, Hannah. But just being devil's advocate here, I'll just throw this into the mix. If you are a country that wants quality tourists, are you looking at quality tourists that would spend 45 days in your country? Or is that bending a little bit more towards the backpacker market? (laughs) Yes, exactly. So, uh, yeah. It's it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, how many how many high net worth individuals can fly off for forty five days? Let's leave leave that there for our listeners to ponder. Yeah, um, next one was a pick from you, wasn't it, Gary? About high speed rail. Yeah, we'll just talk about this very briefly. It's a long term project, as we know. China has these ambitions to build a, a Pan ASEAN railway. The first part of that opened last year. That was the China Laos railway. Uh, we know that in Thailand at the moment, they're building in two phases, uh, another railway, which will connect Bangkok to the Laos border. Ultimately, that will be able to connect up if they build a bridge across the Mekong with the China Laos railway. Last week, the Malaysian prime minister, Ismail Sabri, said that Malaysia is discussing with Thailand to build a high-speed rail route between Bangkok and Kuala Lumpur, which brings that further down the Malay Peninsula. He also added that uh, Malaysia is in discussions with Singapore to revive uh, the Singapore to KL high-speed railway, which will be the final part of the jigsaw. Now, we know that's a very contentious issue because Malaysia and Singapore agreed to that in 2016 to build a railway. And then Malaysia pulled out of that at the end of 2020. So there is a little, there's a lot of diplomatic back and forth to be done there. These are long-term projects. But certainly the political momentum seems to be there at the moment. It's about finding the funding now and getting these in place. But, you know, potentially in future, the prospect of actually boarding a train from Kunming in southwest China all the way down to Singapore is becoming more likely when it will happen. Who knows? It's probably decades away. Yeah, that would be a fun train ride to do. And our last one, and it's not a Southeast Asian one, but it's a kind of Southeast Asian one, Japan and South Korea. Now, both of these have been in um, the media in Southeast Asia for for different reasons. So South Korea has um, increasingly been turning away um, Thai tourists at the border. Um, and that tends to sometimes be linked to some Thai tourists have overstayed, they're working um, illegally. And they often enter via Jeju Island, which has this visa waiver scheme. Essentially, you don't have to apply for a visa to go there, whereas other destinations within South Korea, you do. And so somehow they can kind of bypass this system and get in via Jeju Island. Um, So there's been a lot of noise in the Thai press about this, about Thai tourists wanting money back. You know, I think legitimate Thai tourists, I think, who, who turned up and were rejected at the border. Um, wanting their money back. And, and therefore, that's actually been playing on the number of outbound tour packages from 
Thailand to South Korea and, and travelers are kind of being turned off by this this possibility of, you know, flying all the way there and turning around and having to come back. But certainly South Korea have been adding connections to Vietnam, adding connections to certain destinations within Malaysia as well. Um, so, it, you know, it, it is starting to pick up, but it, it's still a complicated country um, with, with the testing that is involved. And that probably leads us neatly on to Japan, who have, yes, still very strict border controls. But, you know, in the last couple of weeks, we've seen them roll back uh, pre-departure testing. And just yesterday, we saw them change the rule that tourists will no longer need a guide when they're on package tours. And so, you know, Japan, as we've always said, is a super interesting destination for outbound Southeast Asian tourists. And of course, it's a very important market into Southeast Asia as well. But I really anticipate that with this easing and this further easing around guides and package tours, which of course is going to hugely um, reduce the price of packages, we are going to see a big surge in demand, I think, from Thailand at least, and if not from the other Southeast Asian countries too. Absolutely. 100% agree with that, Hannah. I think <clears throat> the, the two main stories that people are talking about at the moment uh, right now are China outbound, hoping that that will come back, and, and Japan outbound, of course, but definitely the surge there in demand for travel to Japan. It, you know, pretty much everybody I talk to, wherever they are in Asia Pacific, it's, it's very high on their bucket list and the opportunity to be able to go back to Japan, particularly in the early stages when it probably won't be quite as crowded, you probably have a little bit more space. I think that's, uh, you know, that's, that sounds very appealing. I mean, personally, I, I would love to be going to Japan, but I do know somebody who is actually going to Japan. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I am very pleased that the pre-departure testing has been removed as I'm scheduled to. I think it's removed from something like the 7th of September. And from the 17th of September, I'm, I'm taking a trip to Japan for um, Adventure Travel Trade Association. And so I am really, really pleased <laughs> that that has been removed. I'm just hoping that they remove the visa requirement for my next trip in November. Uh, so fingers crossed they, they ease that. But yeah, I can't wait. My first trip out from Malaysia, my first plane journey since uh, February 2020. I've not even been on a plane <laughs> since then. Just a little bit ridiculous, the amount of time I talk about airports and planes and uh, and tourism but hey and two trips to japan in in what two months before the end of the year i'm, I'm green with envy hannah green with me. yep exactly plus switzerland and singapore so it's going to be the road show <laughs> we'll try to keep track of where you are <laughs> yeah exactly if i can um so that brings us to a close of our look back at the big stories in august we hope you enjoyed the podcast and don't forget to send us your thoughts and comments on anything we discussed or anything we missed out you can drop us a message on our LinkedIn page at the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Yeah. Meanwhile, you can catch up with the Southeast Asia Travel Show's full back catalogue on our website, the seasiatravelshow.com. And of course, you can listen to every episode, including this one, on all the various international podcast platforms. Again, just search for the Southeast Asia Travel Show. And if you do tune in via Spotify or Apple Podcasts, please give us a quick rating and a review as that helps other people to find the show. And just before we go, Hannah, I was looking back at our stats for this year. We were talking at the front of the show about the fact that we're two thirds of the way through 2022. We have seen since April, we have seen a definite upward curve. It's very, very visible in terms of number of downloads of our show around the world and in more countries as well. July 2022 was our second highest number of downloads since we started the show. 
and August was our third highest. So there's definite interest around the world for what's happening in our region. Yeah, well, that's a nice way to end the show. And we'll both return next week. We look forward to talking to you then. <laughs>